Okay, so this week's Torah portion is called Yitro, Jethro. Um, and, uh, well, you'll find it on page 471. That's the beginning of the portion. We're actually not going to focus on that part. But I'll give you an overview. So, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and this Torah portion is named after him, which is interesting. Moses. And uh, Jethro comes in chat. And so this is the portion where of standing at Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. That's what happens in chapter 18 is the chapter about Jethro coming to visit Moses. And then chapter 19 is the preparation for receiving the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments and the aftermath. So this is a very, very powerful portion. And uh, what happens in chapter, and I wanna fo- I'm not going to focus on Jethro, but it's worth talking about because uh, he hears about that they've been rescued from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, and he comes and he brings Moses' wife, Tipora and their two children, their two sons, who apparently Moses had sent them back you know, uh, and so they're all reunited. And then Jethro um, observes Moses the next day, uh, standing, sitting all day while people stand in line around the block waiting for him to adjudicate their issues. And Jethro says, it is not good what you're doing, Moses. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear the people out. Now listen to me. And he gives him instructions how to set up a court system. Uh, it, and uh, that's what happens in chapter 18. And then Jethro they, they says farewell, and he goes home. So other, if we go on in Jethro's direction, it's totally fascinating that Moses has this mentor who's not an Israelite, who tells him what to do. It's a fascinating story. And then in chapter 19... It says, the children of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Sinai and encamped at the foot of the mountain. And in that chapter, there's the entire description of the preparations, spiritual preparations that they have to do in order to be ready to receive God's word. And then in chapter 20 are the Ten Commandments. So that's what happens in this portion. Miriam, did you raise your hand? Yeah, Jethro really is the one that knew more than anybody else. Jethro, because Moses had lived with him. Yes. So he was really his guide. And isn't he the one, didn't someone we read where it was Jethro who said, you've got to go or something? Um, Yes, when Moses says, when Moses comes back from the burning Burning bush, bush, he tells Jethro about it, and yeah. Jethro says, well, then you must go. Yeah, so right. it's like he was his, like a spiritual father guide. That's right. That's right. Jethro is Moses' surrogate father, his spiritual teacher, yeah. all of that. Yes, there's a big, there's a whole story to be told about Jethro. Um, what I wanted to focus on today, since we're calling this the shadow side of Torah, is that and I'll just sort of lay out the big theme, and then I want to look at it with you. And 
see where this conversation goes because this will be a, I, I trust this will also be a personal personal reflection as well which is that the people are terrified at the mountain and after they hear the Ten Commandments it says and the people fell back uh, for they did not want to hear anymore and they said to Moses you speak to God because if we do we're going to die and then Moses says, don't be so afraid. You know, and so the, one of the quests, and beforehand they're terrified too. And so it occurred to me while I was reading this, what are they so scared of? Right? That's the question that popped in my head. There's so much, there's so much, your ah, your ah is the word for fear and awe. Right, so again, it can cut, goes both ways. Um, uh, um, but clearly it's terror also, right? It's, like, it's, it's that kind of fear. So, um, uh, uh, so the question occurred to me, what are they so afraid of? What's so terrifying about this? And that's, that's, a, that's a wide open question. What are we so afraid of? Because we stand at Mount Sinai. Too. You know, so that's, that's just, I just want to put that out as where I want us to start thinking about, and then I'll share some stuff with you. Yes, Barb? But on the simplest level, when you ask, what were they so afraid of? I mean, the mountain was shaking, no? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I might be, forget about the words. I mean, if you just, just good. alone. Good, good, good. Ter- <laughs> and then, and then uh, but then after they hear the words, they're still terrified. <laughs> I feel like you're in a movie. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, good, good. So let's look at it. So um, I wanted to look at the episode right before, um, uh, at the end of last week's portion, because remember, they're contiguous in the Torah <clears throat> scroll. Even though it's last week's portion and this week's portion, the actual narrative, the end of the previous one and this one are contiguous. So look back at page uh, 447, chapter 17, 446 and 447. So they've just been introduced to manna, that's before that, but now this is the next section. So from the wilderness of sin, the whole Israelite community continued by stages as the Eternal would command, and they encamped at a place called Rifidim. Um, and uh, uh, that name gets, it seems to have an important meaning, meaning. And in this episode, there was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink, they said. And Moses replied to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you try the eternal? Test the eternal. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And Moses cried out to the eternal, saying, What shall I do with this people? Before long they'll be stoning me. <laughs> and then the eternal one said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take along the rod with which you struck the Nile and set out, and I will be standing there before you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will issue from it, 
and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And the place was named Massah and Merivah, because that means a trial and trouble, basically, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tried the eternal. Nasotam, saying, is God present among us or not? Okay, so that's the question they ask. That line becomes very important. Did you want to say something? Yeah. No, go ahead. <coughs> is the Hebrew word for struck the same here as when he struck the rock later? Uh, Hikita. Yes. So the, Mary's remembering that this same episode happens again in the book of Numbers. But it's because he strikes and doesn't. In that version, he strikes the rock. And, because and, for, and, and God says, because you didn't trust me in the sight of all the people, you're not going to enter the promised land. Because God just said, speak to the rock. Because God says, in that case, speak to the rock. So we have these two versions of the story. When I was studying uh, Mary Douglas about the structure of the Torah, um, when, you, when you compare these episodes in Exodus of their wanderings, and then the episodes in Numbers about their wanderings, they repeat frequently. The motif is repeated, but with variations. And... Uh, uh, so there's some kind of, um, it's some kind of literary structure where the story gets repeated twice, but with different, uh, isn't that interesting? How come this time he said, strike, God says, strike the rock, and the next time God says, speak to the rock? He struck the water with the, in the, in the, of the, uh, the Nile, right? He also strikes the sea, right? So we're to part. This, I love Moses' staff. That is some... <laughs> Great staff. You want one, don't you? I want one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Um, so, the children of Israel have been taken, been rescued from Egypt. They've walked through the Red Sea. Uh, and they, after the Red Sea, they said, Who is like you, God? Asher al Adonai, I'll sing to God, for God is like worked wonders. Then they go journeying and they get this, they get manna uh, this, that's there every morning and it's like, so they, they are being shown something about, you know, the, their deliverance that they should perhaps trust, where, live with a sense of trust. Um, and then they run out of water, and instead of having faith that somehow there'll be water to sustain them, they once again rebel and freak out, and you're killing us. And, you know, we know this about the children of Israel. And the children of Israel are each of us, and each step of the journey, it, it, you know, like the weather today, you know, why, why is this happening to me? You know, it's never going to, you know, we just, uh, and, it, um, and uh, it seems that the, the, the reason the place is called Masa and Meribah, which means quarrel, and uh, Meribah is a, um, it's a, they're synonyms, a big quarrel, a big to-do, a big upset. Because they tried, tried the eternal. The Hebrew word is nasotam. They tested the eternal, saying, 
Is Yud Bekirbenu Im Ayin? Is God in our midst or not? Question mark. So then the next thing that happens in verse 8 is it says, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, not all of us know who Amalek is. Um, First of all, where'd they come from? And why are they coming and doing battle with with Israel? And this place, Rephidim, we don't know exactly what it means, but the the commentaries always say it means Rephidim, their hands grew weak. Uh, The the, the children of Israel, right? Um, and you'll see why. Let me read this whole episode, and then we'll talk about Amalek. Moses said to Joshua, Pick some troops for us and go out and do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand, that same one he just struck the rock with. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Then whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur, one on each side, supported his hands. Thus his hands remained steady until the sun set. And Joshua overwhelmed the people of Amalek with the sword. Then the Eternal One said to Moses, Inscribe this in a document as a reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Adonai Nisi. He said, It means hand upon the throne of the Eternal. The Eternal will be at war with Amalek throughout the ages. So we are introduced here to this people, Amalek who, it appears, even at the time that the Torah was <coughs> composed, were a symbolic uh, quant entity, um, an entity that represented evil, that represented everything that God, you know, is, is com- battling, doing battle with. Uh, and... Uh, so Amalek makes its appearance here, right before they get to Mount Sinai, and right after they have wondered aloud, is God with us or not? Is God in, are we, is Yodhevavi part here or not? Um, so Amalek comes to represent many things. Um, we see Amalek once more in the Torah, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy, where Moses is instructing the children of Israel and says, Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How, n- not having any fear of God, he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Okay, so Amalek, Amalek's strategy is to predator, right? Classic predator, um, 
Uh, now, that works in the wild, but that's not how that the Torah is trying to create a society where the predators are not in control. Did you say this was his first appearance? Amalek's first appearance is here in Exodus. Right. Um, Amalek in Jewish teaching becomes the word synonymous with that human behavior that takes on, that, 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 that has no reverence for life, whose purpose, who therefore can go ahead and pick out the poor and the weary and the famished, undeterred by any fear of God. Right? And God in this case, again, expand that definition. Conscience, a sense of the sanctity of life, a sense of our interconnectedness. Carol? I just want to, not going where you want to go, but this just occurred to me. This is the second example right now that we've been talking about. There are others earlier, certainly. That Moses needs help. Moses, Mm -hmm. that feels really important to me. That once again, as great as Moses is, and as much as we can revere him, Moses is a human being. I think that's very pertinent. He has to sit on a rock, and his and he has to have someone help hold up his hands. And if his hands get weak and fall, then they start to lose. But if they're up now, but that also I, makes him part of the people because their hands are rendered weak. weak. Mm-hmm. So he's not really a, above or apart from them. He's just one of them. He's their he's their he's their leader, <laughs> but he's one of them. As one of them, right? Right. Yes. But one of the truths <clears throat> is, is to extrapolate that none of us do whatever it is alone. We've right. all received in some way or another the love and conscience and support of the universe in whatever way we have received it. That's right. That's right. Yes. And God told Moses that Aaron, when he said, I can't go to the Pharaoh, <coughs> Aaron will be with you, right? And I will be with you. And there's a fascinating choice of words in the description of Moses' hands. Look, look on page 448. So, in verse 12, Moses' hands grew heavy, kavedim. Kaved is the same thing that happens to Pharaoh's heart, right? And so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Chor, one on each side, supported his hands, Tamchubi Adav, Mizeachad, from one side and from the other. And then, if you know Hebrew, look at the last <coughs> line of verse 12. Vihi Yadav Emunah, Adbo Hashemesh. And his hands were Emunah. What's Emunah? Faith. faith. Emunah means faith. It's a great word in Hebrew. Lahamin is to have faith in. Emunah is faith. It can also mean trust. And uh, when you say amen in response to a, a blessing, amen or amen means it is so. Or those words are trustworthy. Or you understand what? The verified. 
you know, uh, oh, I don't know what the right uh, English would be for amen, but it all comes from the Hebrew word for confidence and trust and faith. So something about Moses' hands, it can also mean steady, that's why it's translated steady here, but the Hebrew is a whole constellation word that everybody who knows any, any Jewish language knows, amuna, faith. Yes? Um, I want to kind of describe <coughs> what I had said before. Um, we have self-power, which in Japanese is purity, and we have other power, which is poverty. And when one becomes out of balance in a leader, to think that the only power is self-power, you end up with tyranny. Basically. Yes. And so... The definition of Pharaoh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to relate this to Amalek in some way, and I haven't really got there, but... Um, It'll yeah. roll in. Thank you. Imam in 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 uh, uh, Arabic, I don't know. The word is imam, though there's a name iman, like that was David Bowie's wife, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, which probably is the same root as emuna, because Arabic and Hebrew have so many shared roots. And a Muslim leader is called imam. I don't know if that's related. Right. Different. Curious. Yes. Be very curious. Be interesting. No. It, it doesn't sound that way because uh, Arabic, like Hebrew, functions on root, roots, and imam is a different root than iman. But I don't know enough remotely. I don't know anything. Uh, okay, so if, and this gets to this, the ancient and continuing spiritual reading of this text, personal spiritual reading, if Moses' hands were emunah, um, Look at back at page 447. In verse 7 it says, The children of Israel quarreled and tested Yudhe saying, Is God among us or not? So that questioning, that doubt, that uncertainty um, is the is the opposite of Moses' hands remaining up with the support of um, Aaron and Khor, right? Because his hands alone are going to get tired. But with the support that he needs, he can keep the faith and help, as leader, everyone keep the faith. The children of Israel are losing their faith regularly. Their faith, faith means trust. Their faith, you can live life with trust or you can live it with fear, right? They're always commingled for us. But it is an essential uh, dichotomy of how to walk through your day. That doesn't guarantee outcomes. Not in my experience, though it does alter what comes my way, right? If I am living a life 
and in fearfully anticipating bad things happening, it certainly increases the likelihood of crap happening to me. It's not that you create it all, but that. But if you can walk through your day trusting, open, ready, walking forward with faith, then uh, your experience of being alive is completely different. Um, so Amalek in the Jewish spiritual tradition is not only that aspect of human, human, human nature that is a predator, that is looking for the weak and the vulnerable to exploit them without conscience, without any reverence for life, without fear of heaven, as, as we say. Um, but uh, is also on the spiritual level, that aspect of ourselves that, that sows doubt. And um, uh, the gematria of Amalek, the Hasidim like to point out, is 240, which is the same gematria of the word safek, which means doubt. And in Deuteronomy, where they're mentioned again, there's this, they, they also, we also have this tradition of remember what Amalek did you, did you on your journey after you left <coughs> Egypt. How he surprised you on the march. Now the Hebrew is asher korcha baderech. That can be, tra- to, uh, likro is to um, happen upon. Why? It, it, to, it's, it, it means that who, like, encountered you. But kar means cold. And so korcha can also be read, who chilled you, who cooled your ardor on the path. Does that make sense, everybody? So Amalek now is not an external foe. An internal quality. Where we are filled with doubt, our ardor for our goal and for our, our destination and for our purpose is somehow chilled, cooled, and then we don't remember that we have a sacred purpose, mm-hmm. which is to fulfill, we're going to get there, the covenant in this passage, in our portion this week. So, in, so Amalek is understood both as, as the external foe, but also as the internal, the internal obstacle, the internal foe that sows doubt, that makes us constantly ask, is there any meaning to this? Uh, and if there isn't, then what's the point? And so why am I even bothering? And uh, I might as well just, you know, get mine and uh, screw the rest, uh, because that seems to be all that's going on here. And, 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 and yet the, the children, and, and the children of Israel have been liberated from Egypt in order to embrace a higher purpose to become a kingdom of priests and a holy people and embrace the trust, the emunah of that we are going to fulfill this holy covenant of treating everyone uh, uh, with, with care and, and, and ju- just and caring treatment. So Amalek, that's how Amalek is understood, the one who cuts down the weak and the stragglers, undeterred by any sense of, um, of, uh, of, of higher purpose. Yes? 
Are there any other important figures in the Torah who remain wordless as Amalek is? Oh yeah. Uh, they are who a remain godless. No, a godless without dialogue. Ah, uh, I don't know. However, I do know that Amalek keeps making appearances throughout the Bible. The next appearance Amalek makes is in the book of um, Samuel, when um, King Saul is commanded to destroy Amalek, and he doesn't. He takes their belongings and their booty. And uh, uh, he is deposed from the, the kingship because of that. And King David becomes king. But I'm wondering if he has a, given a, a particular insidious quality. Amalek? Haman. Amalek. If, if, if he, he says nothing. Says nothing. The next appearance of Amalek is in the story of Esther, where Haman's genealogy identifies him as a descendant of Amalek. Does that Amalek say anything? Well, Haman has plenty to say. Oh, oh, right. oh I'm saying Haman, of course. Oh, I see Haman. I'm sorry. I hear you right. Right. As a, as a descendant. So, no, we never hear from Amalek other than, we don't know who Amalek is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's mysterious, and we have no idea how Amalek becomes archetypal so early in the Jewish tradition. But Amalek is archetypal. A uh, Haman is identified as a descendant of Amalek. Uh, undeterred by fear of God, he just takes, he wants to take down the Jews. Yeah. Yes, Paul. I've heard somewhere, I think from some rabbi in Baltimore, he said that because Saul didn't kill Agog, the king, and um, he only took his, he just treated him like a normal kind of prisoner. Right. That in the time uh, b- before Samuel came and actually killed Agog, that, a- that Agog had progeny. And right. it's from those progeny that the Nazis and Haman and all those people. That's right. Yeah. So that was so that's why you had to really totally wipe them out because it was just a bad. Right. It's an archetypal struggle against yeah. evil, and uh, so. Um, Does anybody make the connection between Amalek and, and Satan? You know. I wouldn't go that. I I don't know. I have to look that up I mean, because if, if, because. If you're always talking about how things are are prepared for. Uh, or, or the writers of the New Testament want to make the genealogy work. Ah, uh, so so let's let's just talk about Satan for a minute again, in case you're not familiar with this. The Hebrew word Satan means prosecutor, <laughs> um, or um, something along those lines. And they imagine the heavenly court in ancient Israel, and they imagine a prosecuting angel who is called Hasatan, the prosecutor. It's not a proper name. Right? And in the book of Job, the prosecuting angel, Hasatan, says to God, Why do you care about these creatures, these humans? They're pathetic. I bet Job is only worshiping you because. He's got it good. I bet if things went bad for Job, he would curse you. And God says, oh, let's see about that. I mean, we studied Job a few years ago. It's like a mind-blowing book. <coughs> and uh, only later, and that's maybe 5th century BCE or 6th century, so only later does Satan become personified. And um, Judaism never personifies Satan to the degree that Christianity does. So I don't know 
But Satan's, Satan in Job, where the, the Satan, the prosecutor, um, purpose there clearly is to undermine humanity's, you know, to say they're not so good. They're, he's a prosecutor, that's what it means. So that's a good question. I've never seen where Satan and Amalek link up. I'll have to look into that. It, it's a question, what does evil mean? Because how, how do you define evil? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, and we can certainly talk about that. Is there any relationship between when the temple was destroyed <clears throat> and that the people, what I've heard is that the people were maybe of this bickering, same sort of and, uh, yes. interaction yes. so that they were not together as holy. Right. Is there? You're remembering that when the second temple was destroyed in the first century under the Romans, the rabbis asked the question, why did this happen to us? And uh, the most, the, the most uh, highest, the answer that sort of gets the most votes in the tradition, there's, they, because that's too, usually they put out a huge amount of, you know, words and stories and explanations about, about this is that, well, during the first temple period, we know, you know, there were two temples. The first one was destroyed in 586 BCE by the Babylonians. And then the temple was rebuilt, and then that temple was destroyed in the year 70 of the uh, common era by the Romans. So there were two temples. And in Jewish history, you talk about the first temple period and the second temple period. And in the Book of Kings, which recounts the monarchy of David up until the temple is destroyed, the first temple, it's clear that the first temple was filled with idol worship. It's explicit. But the second temple period, hundreds of years later, when the rabbis are now present in Jewish life, uh, there's no evidence that there's any idol worship in the uh, second temple. Judaism has evolved. And uh, so the rabbis say, well, we know why the first temple was destroyed. The Book of Kings tells us. It, because people were, they filled the temple with idols. But what about us? And the answer is, the second temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, which means gratuitous hatred and, uh, amongst ourselves. And they are speaking from firsthand knowledge of the condition of the Jewish people in the first century. They were brought down as much by their internal strife as by the Roman oppression. Right? And we know about all the different sects that were battling amongst themselves in Jerusalem. Sounds similar. Well, yes, plus change. Uh, it does. It does. So that phrase, baseless hatred, is one of the, is, it's why, is, is the Jewish conclusion of why we lost our nation, home, our national home. Incredible, huh? Um, it's probably the same cautionary. Reason. It's the same reason why in America they've never been able to establish a national theater. <laughs> <laughs> oh. One of the things, one of the things I've been, uh, I was doing on my vacation was I actually read a book. Uh, I'm only, I, I'm, I even got like, I'm up to 1938 now. It's this new history of the um, United States by Jill Lepore called oh. These Truths. 
and to read about the strife that has characterized the American experiment the entire time is really staggering. It makes even that more remarkable that we got this far. So, uh, yes, a lot of things couldn't be established because of internal strife. Um, let's see, so uh, that's what you were remembering, gratuitous, baseless hatred, uh, which would also be another definition of evil. Uh, so, if Amalek is doubt, our cooled ardor, our lack of sense of moral order, our lack of sense of mission or purpose, which are part of the human makeup, right? Uh, that everyone is in a battle with. We're all, we're all in a battle uh, to keep our hands up towards heaven. That image, is, is this an image of victory or an image of supplication or an image of, it's such a, there's no single answer. That's why it's so great to have an image. It's just an image of Moses sitting on a rock, fatigued with his two, um, uh, two of his, uh, his brother and Hur, his cousin, who work with him, holding his hands up so that he, they can be emunah, keeping the faith, right? Keep the faith. That's what he's doing against the power, the force of Amalek, which has come and attacked them out of nowhere, right? They, they didn't provoke. They, so it's such an interesting passage. But when does Amalek attack them? Right when the children of Israel are saying, we don't really know if God is, if, if, if Yudhavavi is with us or not. And we're like, we're not sure about this at all. We want to go back to Egypt. That's the opening. Each of us faces that regularly in our lives, right? When we have a crisis of faith, <clears throat> who gets us through? <laughs> Who's holding our hands up? Right? Who's giving us a rock to sit on? This imagery was so profound for me while I was reading this this morning. Do you want to say something, Barb? Well, an even more of a case for Satan because... Uh... I mean, right, you know, sitting on your shoulder saying... The yeah. inner prosecutor. Right. Who's the, who's the little devil with the horns on this shoulder, right? Right, that right, image? Yeah. Where does that come from? I love that. That's a great right. image, you know, with the two... Um, uh, whispering in our ear, you're nothing. Drop it. Give up. You know, go ahead. Indulge in that. You know, forget all the things that will make us give up our sense of sacred commitment mm -hmm. to a vision of how life should be, how we should treat each other, how we should... That's Amalek. I'm also thinking that here is where the most breath is available to your body. Yes. Beautiful. Like Bethel Merman. Don't <laughs> 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 she held out, right? Well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thank you. Yes, keep examining that image. I think it's really beautiful because it lends itself. It's a picture that lends itself to all of our imagination, Paul. Well, I, th I think that physically it is like we were drawing energy from heaven and from earth. 
Um, mm -hmm. Aviva Zornberg, she quotes Winnicott, this famous English psychologist, in describing much of the behavior of the children of Israel, where he would say that that life as a child, that the parent, and more specifically the mother, Winnicott was attachment yeah, theory. Yeah, that that you that, that that the parent creates a space. It's probably more specifically the mother, where the child is protected, but also has a certain amount of freedom. So mm -hmm. that so that becomes this thing of how you give them freedom, but you're also protective. And my feeling is that Moses is like the inner me. He's like the parent. And well, this is at a point where these children are like, they really need the presence of their mother all the time. And he's literally, and we drawing, has this energy. He's like, he's like a lightning rod drawing this energy of, the, of God. And, and as long as he's, the, he's like, you need the parent right there visibly in the room. Otherwise, the, the child freaks out, I think. Thank you. So, in the, yeah. thank you. In the wonders of Hebrew, that actually helps explain something. Because the root Aleph Mem Nun, means what I said about trust, faith, confidence. But uh, an Oman is a nurse mate, a, uh, a caregiver. Mm -hmm. So same letters, mm -hmm. same letters. And Omanut is actually art and, uh, arts and crafts, right? Art and crafts. So it's, it's a fascinating route. But um, uh, so there's something in that word, vihidav emuna, that means, and his hands were steady, they translate, his hands were trustworthy, his hands, his hands were full of faith. And visible. And visible, but the word emuna, but it also could mean, and his hands were emuna, they offered care, protection. And also as the leader, he or she, his, it's the embodiment of the spirit. So it's like this, the presence of the spirit, which is sort of like, you know, the, the consciousness of this group. Moses is in each of us as an archetype, is the one, the, one of us, the, that aspect of us that is holding hands up steadily, encouraging, yeah. creating both safety and freedom to explore. Yes. That's what faith does. That's what faith does. Now, faith can be expressed in different language and metaphors by different individuals. For some people, their faith is very concrete and is in that loving mother God presence that's protecting me no matter what, right? But for others of us, it can be much more abstract. Uh, and it can be the attitude we choose to walk through life. For others of us, it can be grounded if we've had such an experience, in a mystical awakening, where folks who have, many folks that I've spoken with, and myself too, have had experiences <coughs> where we just, where it's just clear to us in that state of consciousness that all is well. That, that there is a benign and, and creative power in the universe that, and it's all unfolding, and that it's okay. That becomes a ground for walking through life with trust. And uh, so, yeah, I think uh, Aviva Zornberg talks a lot about Winnicott and attachment theory as this effort through the wilderness. <coughs> you know, if the children of Israel get too far away from mom, and where's mom? And they panic, and then they get reassured. And then if they're going to grow up, they have to internalize that presence. And there was a lot of it, it's even on the Onui, that when there was nothing happening, it was equally difficult. And like, what do we do now? There's just nothing right. going on. There's nothing on, going you know? on. And so, we human beings, when what we have absence, 
What do we fill it with? But also why Moses then has to die and not come to the Holy Land. That would explain why Moses, as our mother, uh, and again, you know, Moses says to God in the book of Numbers, during one of the parallel episodes, I said how when they're complaining again that they don't have meat, because we didn't do this, but just before they complained that they don't have meat. So again, he says, am I this people's nursemaid? That I'm supposed to carry them on my bosom through the wilderness? I'm going to find the passage for you. Okay. Yeah. Is there any significance to the fact that, that Aaron, or Aharon, and Kor, his brother and his brother-in-law, are holding up his hands? You can answer that as well as I. We, you know, it, it's but Barb, it's been it's been noted. It's been noted, and Aaron Hur is an interesting Who is Hor? character. Hur, it doesn't sound exactly clear. He's a he, some sort of say he, Some people say that he's married to Miriam, right, that's uh, but that's not what the text says because we never uh, Miriam's never given a spouse in. Hmm? <laughs> That would ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> Miriam's never given a spouse in the Torah. Um, and uh, uh, then another thing that happens is in the Golden Calf episode, we know who Hur is. He's part of the most extended family. But I'm, I don't remember is he exactly an older? who. Is he like he's also older? He's their yeah. age, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's too old to play. In the, in, the, um, in the episode of the Golden Calf, this is in a digression. <clears throat> It says that the people approached, Moses is on the mountain, and it says the people approached Aaron and Hur. So they're still together there, not too many chapters from now. And said, build us a golden calf. And Aaron says, come back tomorrow. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, and finally, when they approach Aaron again, they say, they come back to Aaron, and Hur is gone. We never hear about Hur again. And so the Midrash says, that when they said that, Hur said, not on your life. No way. Didn't you just see what happened? I mean, he's one of the ones who holds up Moses' hands. And in the Midrash, it says, they murdered him. Oh. Uh. Because, and Aaron watched what was happening and oh, said, wow. okay, okay, mm. sure, sure, we'll build a golden calf. <laughs> right? So I'm just saying, Hur has an interesting place in the literature, and the more I think about it, now I see why the rabbis went that way. Because who's the guy holding up Moses' hand? He's right there. Does his name tell us anything about him? Yeah. Mm, don't know. Uh, we'll have to look into that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's so interesting. Yes? You know, as I look at you with this position, I'm seeing three. You know, two arms and a head. So there's something... There's something about the number three that I'm thinking about here. That's it. Okay. And I don't, I don't quite know what to make of it, but you know. And to look at the other two, then there's a five, but right. Or a three. Well, there's both. Right. Three people. You know. Oh my goodness! Uh, thank you. Uh, there's three of them. I'm sorry, I found the passage I want to read. Go ahead. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Okay, so in Numbers, the people are demanding meat, and they're threatening to stone... No, they haven't, they haven't uh, threatened to stone him yet. Moses heard the people weeping every 
family at the entrance of every tent. God was angry and Moses was very distressed. Uh, and Moses said to God, why have you dealt so badly with me, your servant? Why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I bear them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land you have promised on oath to their ancestors? Now the Hebrew word is indeed, just as Yisah HaOmen et HaYunek, the Omen, Aleph Mem Nun. He compares himself to a nurse. And the, and the Onek is the um, suckling baby uh, carried on her breast. Uh, am I the, their nurse? Well, Moses has his own struggles. Moses needs help being emunah. So the word omen, which means nurse, and the word emunah, which means faith and trust, and your connection to Winnicott, I think that really is there in the text. Because why does this word omen come up here and emunah there? Moses needs help. Moses constantly needs help to, to, if he's going to do this. This is the passage which many of you remember because I always cite it. Where am I to get meat to give all these people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry this people by myself. It is too much for me. If you're going to treat me this way, I would rather you just take me out and kill me. That's one of my favorite lines in Torah. Grow up. <laughs> Moses, said, Moses says, just shoot me. Like, he's having his own crisis of faith right there. Is, is it like Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? That's interesting. That's a sort of overarching question of the Torah. Yeah. I think it's very related, yeah. I think it's more like a, a woman, a mother who's had a tough pregnancy. And well, she said, and said, this was enough, I've had, you know. But it's <laughs> all that, it's all, you know, I feel that sometimes, that, you know, I take on a lot taking care of people. And um, I want to, but um, yeah, like I often am struggling with where are those lines and, mm -hmm. you know. I might argue that classically in Buddhism, the, the main argument for cultivating compassion is that you think of what your mother did for you. You think of all the sacrifices that your mother went through. If you were blessed with a mother who was or capable. You find, of or you find some Thank woman you. or some person, doesn't have anyone in your life who was like that. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be your blood mother. Right. That invariably there is someone. And then you think of what that person did to help you. And then you just feel obliged to return the favor. Beautiful. And then and in reincarnation, you were everybody's mother, everyone was your mother, so then you have the obligation to help everyone because you were once literally their mother right. and their, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you don't need reincarnation to make yeah. that leap of right. imagination. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I struggle with the other side, which the last couple of years is that a person who, which I've been sharing, when they've had some sort of tra brain trauma, there's, it's called sundowning. 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 <coughs> and I didn't know, because this is what Michelle would do, when the sun, when it starts getting dark or gray, they, they turn from this caring, loving, poetic person to being pretty vicious. Mm -hmm. And nasty. Mm -hmm. And I was, I've been thinking about myths where people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, hide away. A werewolf. A werewolf. 
It's just like, and I was just thinking, it's like, it's like turning each day, but this is someone who's older. But we're talking about the children. I thought, well, well, this has to somehow play in here somewhere. That mm -hmm. in within our character, because it, it's, it, I've experienced it, and it feels there's a sense of evil about it. Yes. Not that 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 something painfully, painfully evil has taken this person over. Mm hmm. You've witnessed that, I know. Yes, and and so I'm on this campaign. But what it's like, I feel like. Oh, I know what Moses went through. <laughs> oh my God, please. Yeah. Yeah. One quick thing. I just saw the play Waverly Gallery by Kenneth Lonergan. And, and in it, oh, yeah. the, the, the mother who's in her 80s, she's it's losing it. She's suffering from dementia. And she's, and she's like, it's like, she's very difficult to deal with. And so she's with her family and she's driving them crazy. And they've had enough, they've had enough. They've had enough. But in the course of the play, you realize that you know this poor older woman. She's a really nice person, whereas a lot of the people in her family are just complete assholes. And you just, I mean, you just realize that some people are just nice people, and other people are just not particularly nice. You know, so that's the key: is like, how do you become a nicer person? Nicely so put. That, so that you're a nice person, regardless. I mean, this is your mother of eighty-five. You know, my God, give her a break. You know. So let me. That's right. So let's take that. Yeah. So, right in this direction. So if Amalek is that is that opening to that 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 takes the opening when we that vulnerable moment. That vulnerable moment, that moment when we're wavering, that moment when we've lost our emunah, that moment so what then so then it so then following that thread, the God's purpose in giving us the Ten Commandments and in entering having us commit to entering into this covenant is to give us a set of instructions, a template, uh, uh, moral guidelines that, when in doubt, will prevent us from falling off into, into the, 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 um, the, the Amalekite... Uh, the evil impulse. Oh, oh, evil <laughs> impulse, impulse yeah. which called in, in Judaism the evil impulse. Yeah. <laughs> The selfish impulse, the impulse that has no concern for others. Um, when we read the Ten Commandments, we see that they're all about how we treat other people. Yeah. Doesn't this Amok story say that on a fair playing field, evil wins? That on a fair playing field? What do you mean by fair? That in, Neutral? In, yeah, that, that Moses himself can't do battle with him. That, and, and, and even the two holding his hands up don't do it. They, they, they get divine intervention. But one on one, he's a badass. And That's I mean, right. He's, he, he's more powerful than anybody else. That, that he represents, it, is, it seems so cynical to me. I mean, perhaps realistically so. But it, it is given a very. Exactly. So then, why don't we give up? Right? That's the voice of Amalek. That's a good no, that's the point. That's really Why good. don't we give up? Because this is not a rational decision we're making. This is something speaking from a different place in us. The place, this mysterious place of conscience, of a sense of faith, of a sense that there's a reason to be good, 
of a sense, can we justify, can I? No, if we get into that, if we get into that debate, self-interest is going to win. So this is about faith. This is about an inexplicable aspect of ourselves that wants us to be better, that lives with compassion for other creatures, that is not about self-interest. Isn't that amazing? Well, it is about self-interest if we can uh, expand our understanding of self. Yeah. That's right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yes. If we can have a, a, a greater understanding of self, that we are, in fact, our well-being is tied up with the well-being of everything else, right. and then maybe, it is an enlightened self-interest. And maybe when we, we start having experiences of when I call upon that, when I use that, things go a lot better. What does better mean? But what does better mean to you when you say that? that that's, fair, that's a fair question. But I guess what I mean is I feel some kind of peace. I feel some kind of wellness. Love. I feel some kind of unity. Mm -hmm. Wholeness. Wholeness. Mm -hmm. So if I have enough experience of that, it's maybe not as hard to go there. That's right. It's not as irrational. And that's called spiritual practice. Yeah. Spiritual practice is practicing whatever, and practicing being in that space of trusting, opening, flowing, and giving and receiving, right? And in that space, if we practice it enough, we learn that that's where we want to be. Mm -hmm. Right? To do that, what do we have to confront? Now, again, Carol I don't talk, and I talk about this a lot, because Carol, in her acting <clears> teaching, <throat> is teaching people how to breathe and let go constantly into whatever the experience of the moment is. For me, that's what prayer is. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's what sacred study is all about. It's about this place of letting go of my grip mm -hmm. on wanting things to be a certain way. Mm -hmm so that life can unfold through me. And that has its own reward. But it's not a guarantee of happiness. Right. It's a guarantee of connection and aliveness. It's your birthright, but it doesn't... You know, but it's not, know, but we're confused, because we right. think right. that a life of faith means a life of guarantees. No. Right. It's not. Right. Good story. Uh, that's right. It's a two-way street. Yeah. It's uh, that the, the, the spiritual practice of devoting ourselves to letting go of our own grip on how things have to be right now and trusting that if we participate in life unfolding, that somehow it'll be for good, you know, um, is a life. It, that's, that's what spiritual teachers teach us to trust, let go, and participate in life's unfolding. Now, the reward in that for me is that I'm alive. Right? That's the reward. I am just, in, I'm just filled with life. Uh, but when I was on this retreat this past week, I've embraced that for many, many years. And uh, when I was on retreat this past week, I spent a lot of time crying. Mm -hmm. I'm missing my mom. 
you know, that's what, that's what the current crying's about. And, but if I don't open myself to that, then I can't open myself to the next. The next, because I'm spending all of my energy resisting what's flowing, what's happening for me right now. And I have to learn this lesson over and over again. But the more I practice, the more I trust. And one of the rabbis there who led, led, a, led a, one of our meditations read something beautiful. I have to find out. It was a little book of grief, I think it was called. He had this little book called The Little Book of Grief. I think that's what it was. And he said, grieving is uh, the result of loving. And if you love, you grieve. Grief is love Grief is love remembered. It's true. And I'll tell you something else. If you focus, I learned this when my brother died. If you focus on, rather than focusing on your hurting heart, which it's hard to do, if you can remember that love and let that love kind of take you over, it really, it feeds your life. Yes, I know. It really, it really does. I know. I know. Well, I've had a lot of practice crying. Yeah. So I kind of know... I know when I'm just stirring this pot and when I'm actually, em to mix metaphors, when I'm actually emptying the bathtub, you know, it's like, just, <laughs> it's like letting it go, let it go, let it go. Um, uh, so there's different kinds of crying and uh, some of it is, is, uh, isn't so helpful in my many, my long experiment with crying. <laughs> but anyway, um, which is to say, the reason I'm bringing that up with everybody is that uh, I know I couldn't, if I didn't do that, I couldn't and allow it and be with it until I had like, you know, wrung out that washcloth. Then the next thing could happen, which I have learned from experience is a, a new opportunity for whatever's next, uh, the redwood trees or, or whatever, mm. instead of being just completely immersed in my uh, resistance to my loss. So, yes, you want to say something, Paul? Um, in the Chinese system, they say that when you're born, that at that moment of birth, you receive a spiritual influence from heaven, which is akin to the soul, and then a physical genetic influence from your parents, and that comprises um, this original spirit, like your destiny, this is why you're here, this is, this, this is what you're meant to do. But then as you live, you have this acquired spirit, which is the development of your ego to survive, and that can be both good and bad. It can be artificial, it can be neurotic, or it can be a necessary thing to survive. So in the Chinese system, your practice is to return to that original spirit, because then to cultivate that original spirit is to become a sage, because then you're getting closer to the source, to the divine. To cultivate your acquired spirit is just to be an ordinary human being. So I see that this whole story of the, of the Jewish people coming to Mount Sinai, this is like the birth of a people. This is that moment of creation where at that moment is like their original spirit is revealed. The, the reason why they're here, they're closer to God, to the source, than they are to what's going to happen. And so then it's a question of like the practice being how do we return to that moment when we're at Mount Sinai receiving that pure spirit, that heavenly influence from, from God, and whatever the genetic, physical influence, and, and following those rules. And that is, I sense, the history wow. of, the, of the Jewish people. Nice teaching. Yeah.
nice yeah. teaching. You know, yeah. in the Jewish in the Jewish <clears throat> lore, um, they, there's this understanding that while a, not, there's a story that some of us know that while the baby's in the womb, yeah. each baby has an, a guardian angel mm-hmm. that teaches it all the wisdom of the universe, yeah. and then right when they're born, uh, the angel strikes the baby here where we get this the little cleft, cleft yeah. and the baby forgets it all and is born into the world. Right. And that then our purpose as we go through life to remember, is to remember, remember to go back. That's the, what we once knew. And there are ways you can do that. You know. We're all working yeah, yeah. on it. <laughs> Stillness is a big thing. Stillness, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would say eat. And yes, prayers. It's like gathering the, all the things that got dispersed. That's right, that's right. There's that physician again. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, they say that when, when a teaching really hits you, heart and soul, it's remembering what you already knew. Right. right. This is a truth. This is a human truth. Uh, and, it's, and, and it leads us, if we reflect on it, leads us towards a great mystery, mm-hmm. and which would lead us towards having some trust and faith that there's a greater, a greater sense of being that's already present for us, that we're striving to reclaim and live within. Uh, all of it, see, again, it's my personal, conviction isn't even the right word, experience, which can't be validated or rationalized or proven that that's true. Mm-hmm. And rather than, therefore, just serve my ego, Mm-hmm. which has its purpose, right? It keeps you alive. keeps me alive. Yes. There's something that I feel called to beyond my own ego. That is a human experience that almost everybody Divine. tastes sometimes. What is it? That's the question. Gary, you wanted to say something? I, I don't know how to frame the question, but, I, but I'll try. What I hear you saying, among other stuff, is that if we cling on to a concept of where happiness is going to be found, or fulfillment, then we're in a process of constriction. Correct. And that I, I'm, 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 I'm counterpointing that with the importance of family. And, and, and yet, as a third thing, there's the wandering without in the desert. So it seems to me possible that what these guys are telling us is along the way, hold on to what you can, okay? But the day may come when none of these things are available to you. And then, what cracks open? And I'm not making my... Well, that's, you are, because it's a paradox to me. I talked about it on the High Holidays. I quoted Rabbi Milton Steinberg, who said, love is the ability to hold with open arms. Uh, where, and it's just, a, it's just this paradoxical image of, of holding on to what you love at the same time that you're not owning it uh, and trying to control it because it's gonna, because this too shall pass, you know. So it's just, a, to me, that all boils down to a paradox. And beyond the paradox, can we live, because that is the paradox, everything we love, we'll lose at some point. Um, 
can we hold on to the sense of faith that the point wasn't to hold on to it, that there's a greater, a greater aliveness in which life and death both dwell that we are privileged to participate in. Yeah, we're going to lose, we'll, we'll get to the end of words as every time we do this, yeah. And then so we want to do this and have two people holding our arms. It's a great image of William <coughs> Defoe in, uh, in, in... Which movie? In Platoon. Platoon. You know, when he dies, he, he that's the, his image as well. In slow motion. Mm. The supplication. Supplication. You look just like him when you're doing this. Yes. So I've been doing this... Bhagavad Gita study thing lately. Do you know what the Bhagavad Gita is? Do you know what it is? It's it's a I sacred sacred Hindu text. It's, called the, it's yes. the translation is the Song of God. Yes. So it's Arjuna and Krishna on the field of battle, and Arjuna has to fight his own countrymen to get the right person on the throne. But the the whole thing is, and as somehow as humans, we seem to need like this this goal, like this thing we're trying to get. And the thought is that maybe that's not the point. That maybe the point is the journey and the adventure and the things that you come across. And maybe this goal that's out there is just an, ex an excuse, something to get you going <laughs> so that you have these, you know, the, the experience you're supposed to have. The drama of our lives is, is for a higher purpose. Right. To teach us, yes. mm -hmm. to teach us. You know, I'm thinking about the Bhagavad Gita and how it's all on this. It's this metaphorical battlefield, mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. amount of death and destruction that happened <coughs> in that, and the Mahabharata, and um, and then if because of our secular and and sort of sort of concrete orientation, we read about these battles, destroy Amalek, blotted out from under heaven. We say. What kind of story is this? <laughs> and they don't understand that it's a spiritual, it's a mythic story, it's a spiritual story. This is an inner battle. And I just wanted to point that out. Um, so we're all on that quest. We're all on that quest. We all, all of us, not all of us, men, seems like a great many of us, enough to make it <clears throat> collective myth, experience it as a struggle, as an inner battle. Mm -hmm. That we externalize it as a story of battle and struggle. Uh, in our in our mythic landscape, yeah. My niece in California called me the other day and told me she was going to Israel um, with an organization that I've never heard of before called the Women's Jewish Women's Renaissance Project. Never heard <laughs> of it. It's a year long thing where a group a group of women from all over the country um, have some kind of I guess. I guess the computer, but then there's a, there's a local women's group too. And the idea is that they, and she said many of them are unaffiliated, they're from all, just all over the Jewish map. And their goal is to heal the world with Jewish values. And they have to be women who have children who are under 18. And I can make up a lot of reasons why that might be, but but that's that's the rule. And I'm just I'm just I'm just thinking in terms of 
us standing at Sinai and us getting our instructions. And, and what, a, what a beautiful, at least as far as I know about it now, what a beautiful way of embodying those instructions to just bring together these women from, I don't know if it's all over the world or all over the country, and give them a container within which they can live and, and, and give out from Jewish values. Oh, thank you. So I can use these last comments as a segue to then turn us towards the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So look at page um, 473, first of all. 473. So now, chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the children of Israel had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai, having journeyed from Rephidim. So, that's, this is what I want to point out. They've just come from the place of battle with Amalek, of tired hands, you know, refeyadayim, weak hands that need to be held up. And they come to Sinai. They entered and encamped in the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. Mm. That's great right there, isn't it? And yod called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel, Quote, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Mm. So there's, this, there's just this great metaphor. Think of an eagle. Uh, now then, if... Oh, we're at the bottom of 473. Bottom of 473. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully, in other words, if you will shamoa Tishma'u b'koli, hear, yes, hear my voice, u'shmartem et briti, and observe my covenant. V'hiyetem li skula mikol hamim, you will be treasured, a treasure to me, from among all the peoples, even though the entire earth is mine. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. Mm. So I want to point out always that to be God's treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy people, is conditional on our ability to embrace this covenant, this sacred agreement, that we will be dedicated not primarily to our self-gratification or to our selfish path through life, but to a higher purpose, the purpose of how to become a holy community. Um, pretty cool. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. The Jewish, the Jewish path is definitely a path with people. 
right? We, our holy path, our inner purifying, our inner awakening is only valid and worth, worthwhile to the degree to which, and I know this is not the first contradictory of other, <laughs> of other um, uh, traditions, to the degree that we manifest our actions in, in holy behavior to each other. Uh, seems self-evident, but it's worth repeating. There is no, no, nobody gets enlightened and then behaves like an asshole. <laughs> right? No guru gets to sleep. No guru, right? No guru gets to be um, uh, seduced by the unbelievable uh, power and obeisance that everyone is giving them, and then decides that they can sleep with whoever they want, right? That, which happens all the time, right? Um, and, and not just to gurus. I mean, it happens to rabbis and ministers. It happens to happens to school, know, teachers. school teachers. Anybody, anybody. It's like. You think power, you, you, get, you, you get seduced mm-hmm. by, by power, by worship. Huh? 70s, the book, if you meet the Buddhist on the road, kill him. It's the Buddha. Buddha. Don't, if you meet the Buddhist on the road, don't kill him. <laughs> right. Yeah, I couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> don't worry, Mary, I'm not worried about you. That's right. That's right. Um, but basically, uh, that's a message for me. When I meet the Buddha in me, or I meet the one that becomes Almighty, kill him. It's like Amalek. Amalek. That's Amalek. You're right. That is Amalek uh, working its way into your consciousness. That's right. Which is really a, a sort of an it's really an idol in a sense. Like, it's also an idol. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. So when we get to the first two commandments, I am, let's look. So that's the instruction. And now look at page 477. This is it. This is it. This is it. I am the eternal Yudhevavhe, your God. Yudhevavhe, remember the one at the burning bush who says, Tell Pharaoh to let my people go, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. That's it. No other gods besides me. That's the God, the God of liberation from Pharaohonic consciousness. That's it. That's the spiritual path. That's it. That's the first commandment. Everything else will flow from there. You're not God. Moses isn't the one who did it. Moses isn't God. That's why we don't know where Moses is buried to this day and why he has to die before the children of Israel can enter the land. That's right. And the tradition's explicit about that, uh, that the, why do we not know where Moses' burial place is? The tradition answers, so that we can't build a shrine to Moses. It wasn't, and Moses, of all people, is identified as the leader because, by God, chosen because he's more humble than any person on earth. What does that mean? It means he knows he's not God. That's what humility is. I was just thinking about this, and you'll, again, I've said this before, but it took me many years to understand what being humble or what humility meant. It doesn't mean you're worse than everybody else. It means no one is worse than you. Mm-hmm. It means you're no better than anyone else. I, but that doesn't mean you don't have as much value. You're all children of God. That's humility. The other kind of humbleness, that's a form of arrogance, <laughs> I've learned. 
That's a form of saying, I'm special, because I'm worse than everybody. And you give yourself, you give yourself a status, you know, that you can kind of cherish. A victim, it's called. Uh, That's not humility. That's humiliation, right? That's a different, that's a different thing. Uh, So Moses' humility is that he knows he's not better or worse than anybody else, and none of us are God. Kind of reminds me of Gandhi. You should. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Gandhi. These are, this, this is human wisdom, you know, and, and this is the way the Torah expresses it. Yeah. Rabbi Sachs says to this week um, on his, his uh, podcast um, that as far as he knows, anyway, certainly as far as I know, when revelations come in other, in other religions, it comes to somebody. And when revelation came to the Jews, it came to us. Yes, I think this is one of the unique aspects of the Jewish version of how to be a human being. And that is making all the difference in everything we're saying right now. Mm-hmm. Going back to that. That life is with people, as that famous book. Do you remember that book? It was a, um, it's a saying, it's a Yiddish saying, life is with people. And these two sociologists wrote a history of the shtetl, uh, a, not a history, a sociology of the shtetl back in the 50s. And it's called Life is with People. And it talks about all the... Uh, it, 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 you know, it was a classic, and then it got criticized and revised. You know, that sort of thing just like happens with all academic literature. But the fundamental... Because it was too romanticizing of the shtetl, it ignored blah, blah, blah. But I think it captured this essential Jewish idea. Um, uh, Miriam? I'm just curious. This, but I'm curious if in other religions, like in Judaism, there's always debate, there's challenging, there's wrestling, there's this, there's disagreement, there's idea. And when we were having that class about Christianity, and were they talking about do they have this ongoing? <laughs> um. <laughs> Not the Christian in the group. <laughs> so, again. No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. On the other hand, uh, so the way I describe this uh, is that that here's like a whole keyboard of possible chords and themes that make up the human experience. And some traditions play this theme more frequently, and some play this theme. And the Jewish theme is is collective. It's, that's, you know, it's not a solo path, and it's not... So I can say that much, but not to the, but to make black and white statements about, I, I can't say that, but I can say that the Jewish theme music is <laughs> well, to be a holy it's people. Yeah. Yeah. Yiddish. Well, it's collective, yeah. I would say there's different cultural mythologies, and they all can be valid, and they're, yeah. they're, they're, there's good that, versions of them and bad versions. That's yeah, that's, that's, that's how I was trying to say, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there may be multiverses yeah. instead of a unit, I mean, it's infinite. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows is the right question. <laughs> you'd rather be like a master of one than a jack of many. So at certain point you just have to say, well, this is how I want to live. But I think it is fair, is it not, to say that you know, Jesus said, I am the way. You know, I am the way. And you know, again, I, I, 
yeah, it's just profoundly moved by, by, by the Gospels. I'll say that over and over again. Yeah. But, but, but I think it's fair to say, is it not, that, that, that in the Christian tradition, it's follow me. He who would go to heaven comes through me to the Father. And I'm not saying that's better or worse. Right. But I'm saying it is a more... I think that's it, fair. Yeah. Now, Christianity has countless permutations. Uh, and so those who are, who are, who, those who are more interested in social gospel and in, uh, you know, life of acts and deeds find their version of Christianity too, right. you know. But yeah, I think you could say that. I want to go back to this text now. Uh, so, the first commandment. Noah, this is it. Align yourself with, with the power that liberates the slave. Um, the slave, the spiritual slave, but also clearly from the story, the, the person who is under some tyrant's thumb. That is not the divine plan. You have a higher purpose. Uh, then the, it says, you shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or serve them. That's an idol. For I, the Eternal, your God, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Mm. Again, I would spiritualize this, not go literal on it. Uh, the, the, I mean... And this is where, when I started and I said, what are we so afraid of? Um, well, the mountain is quaking, and this is an impassioned God who's speaking to us. You know, uh, so I don't know if we'll go in that direction, but I just wanted to point that out. But an idol is when we... <coughs> there's so many good ways to describe an idol, but in the context of what we're saying today, it's when... when how would you say it, Rob? Fixation. A fixation on a certain outcome. An outcome or mm -hmm. object, not process. Object, not process. Nicely put. Oh, I like that. Nicely put. Thank you. Yeah, very nice. So you're Thank placing you. power in the wrong thing? Or so when, <laughs> what'd you say? John Cage said process, not object. Right, well, he was, John Cage was the process all guy. All process, not object. All process, him and Merce Cunningham, absolutely. Right. So, so I was oh. thinking about yeah. the, the character who um, instills doubt sitting on people's shoulders while they're hearing this, mm -hmm. saying, you'll never do this. You can't do Don't this. Don't even try. And I would right. think that's some of why people were quaking in their right. That's right. right. What? This is what we have to do? Well, now, yeah. we, have, now we have to do something. And like Before Gary said, I think now I'll go to the track. When we just got out, we're just like, hey, this <laughs> is great. We're wandering. Right. There's no box. Now yeah. all of a sudden there's a box, and uh -huh. it's like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. this I don't. Now the thing. order is tall because mm -hmm. there's an order. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was no tall order before. Mm -hmm. So the fear and what is, will happen? The fear could be what? If, what if I can't do this or right. I don't do this? Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. The hand of God going to strike me dead mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. that instant. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? But the idea that you can never be one with God, so you always have this doubt in you that you never can do it. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, we are flesh As, and blood after yeah. all as opposed to other traditions which say you can become enlightened. Uh-huh, which uh, is still bizarre to me. As a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Americans are imbued with a great sense of doubt. We have a lot of insecurity. And other people look at us and they say, are you out of your minds? Like here we're, we're being killed by the whoever, we're the scorpion, we're like, we're living in dire poverty. And you guys, you know, it's like you're worried about, can you get a gluten-free dessert, you know, for your <laughs> Yes, my kids, my kids taught me that's called first world problems. First world problems, yeah. really, like give me a break. Yeah. Right, right, we have the luxury to. Uh, just like it's, uh, so um, uh, that's why when I talk about uh, the purpose of a holy community, I say in a holy community, the ends don't justify the means. Uh, the ends the, are the means. The means are the ends. In other words, how we're doing it is the purpose. The outcome is not in our hands. That doesn't mean you don't set goals and stuff like that. That's all good stuff, but you don't, the ends do not justify the means because the means are the ends. We kind of need the goals to give yourself a kick in the butt. Yeah, goals are fine. <laughs> goals are fine. We're heading to the promised land, absolutely. And we're going to go below. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, um, then it says, You shall not swear falsely by the name of Yodhevavhe, your God, for the Eternal will not clear one who swears falsely by God's name. Keep your word. That's a big challenge. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and all do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the eternal your God. You shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or even the stranger who dwells in your settlement. For in six days the eternal made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the eternal blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. A seventh day to remember that God created the universe. You didn't create the universe. Honor your father and your mother that you may long endure on the land that the eternal your God is assigning to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be a false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor male nor female slave, nor ox, nor ass, nor anything that is your neighbor. That's it. That's what they heard. And all the people <coughs> witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the blare of the horn, the shofar, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. Yanu'u fell back. Yanu'u means like, uh, And... They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen and heed you. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses answered the people, and this is a very interesting sentence. Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you, in order that the fear of God may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. I got this sentence and say, what? <laughs> it says, this is like, if this isn't the koan, I don't know what is. It says, al have you ever noticed this, Ellen? Vayomer Moshe Am, God said to the people, al be not afraid. Ki because in order to test you, Baha Elohim, God has come. And so that 
the fear of God will be ever with you so that you do not go astray and sin. Tehta'u means astray. That's what it means. So that's a good translation for me. Because chet is sin, but remember, chet also means to go off, miss the miss target. The mark, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So we've heard a couple of words twice. It said at the end of the previous portion, uh, uh, before Amalek comes, and the people tested God, saying, is God in our midst or not? And now it says, God is testing you to see if um, uh, your fear of God will be with you so that you don't go astray. So I noticed that this word fear is used. Do not fear. God is testing you in order to see if you fear God. <clears throat> so now we have to look at the word yer ah, which we've talked about before, because it clearly means fear. Uh, Did you say the word yer ah? Yer ah. It means fear. Um, but it also means awe and reverence. Um, and that's why modern, because we Americans don't like the word, don't like to be told we should fear God, you know, re revere, be in awe of. We've talked about this a lot. Again, it's a paradox. It's like I'm standing, one, Rabbi Marsha Prager taught that it's like if you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, didn't what she said? The reason you take, when you take three steps forward before you begin the silent prayer, you have to stand Where you meet God. The silent prayer where, you, where you're addressing God directly, you yourself. Um, one teaching is that you step forward so that your, your toes are curling over the rim of the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Marsha Prager teaches, stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and then take three steps forward. <laughs> 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 then I heard a different version. It wasn't Marsha. It was... The difference between fear and awe is whether you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you have a handrail there, <laughs> and then you can be awe in awe, or whether there's uh, uh, no handrail, and then it's so it's awesome and awful, and that's why awe is a good English. Awe, awe used to mean fear, uh, uh, but this kind of because the word awful doesn't mean horrible. It means full of awe. The truth. And full of awe is awful. And then somehow English transmuted that word to something purely negative. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's where we need to, that's where my thoughts go in terms of how we need to approach fear. Is fear bad? Um, is this kind of quality you know, there's good fear and bad fear. Well, but and how do we embrace it, Barb? Isn't the root? Isn't the well, maybe I got this wrong. Isn't the root yira also to see? Thank you. The root resh aleph he, ra'a, is to see. The root yud resh aleph is to be in awe of or to fear. But However. No, Yerushalayim is to see. No, no. Yerushalayim comes from Ir Shalem, the city of peace. Uh, but 
in the stories of Abraham, when you read the story of the binding of Isaac, the word, the whole parsha called called um, Vaera, is when God appears, when God is seen by Abraham. When you read that parsha, the word for fear and awe and the word for see are repeated constantly. We're supposed to hear something about really seeing is going to lead you into us into this condition of of awe, reverence, and even trembling um, before the, the 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 both the grandeur, the ever living, ever dying, the our incredible infinitesimal uh, self in the presence of the infinite, um, all of those things. So they are not related except literarily when they are. They're very much related. Somehow seeing and awe are very much related in the Torah. Oh. Paul, you wanted to say something and then Miriam. Very quickly, uh, uh, Sojourner Truth was the famous black slave. Um, so the story has it that she was gone off to Pinkster. She was in a Dutch family. So the Pinkster is the Dutch firm, the name for the Pentecost, which was the Christian Shavuos when the, when the Christians would receive a download from Jesus. But by then, she's like, she's like drinking and she's smoking and she's on the road to Pinkster, which is just a celebration of life and it's dance and they party and it's not religious as much. So on that way, this particular day, she has a vision of God and, she's, and she, it, like, it terrifies her. She says, oh my God, I am just so screwed. I am so completely <laughs> off of the track that I, I'm fucked. There's just nothing I can do. And so then she feels this tap on her shoulder and it was Jesus saying, it's okay. I'm here to help you. And so... That's beautifully yeah, put. Yeah, yeah. I have a favorite passage of Martin Luther King, uh, who I've, which I've used here at synagogue. He writes in one of his books that he was having a time of complete despair uh, when his family was being threatened with death. And uh, he was at, late at night, and he's sitting at his kitchen table, and um, he's thinking how he can make an excuse to back out of his leadership roles. I have to, and then he said, and I've never felt so low, and then I felt a presence with me. And it says, I'm with you. Stand up for truth, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, I'm with you. And he said, and with that, all of my doubt and fear disappeared. I've never had an experience like that. Um, and uh, I was able to go on. And uh, it's, I, I hope some of us have had, had experiences like that, where we feel a power greater than ourselves tap us on the shoulder. Um, that's a beautiful story. Well, it, it, I always come back to songs. I'll make this as quick as I can. Another one to that, that, that uh, a country song. <laughs> Country music is a, its own Bible. Yeah, I got home in school one day with a shiner on my heart. Great pot of dish. Listen, hold on. Start again. I got sent home from school one day with a shiner on my heart. Fighting was against the rules and it didn't matter why. When I got home, I told that story just like I rehearsed and stood there on those shaking knees waiting for the worst. He said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. A secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said, daddy don't just love their children every now and then. 
So in love with that and amen. <laughs> and then he said, when I became a father in the spring of 81, there was no doubt that stubborn boy was just like my father's son. <laughs> and, and, and then the last verse says, I won't go on with white Cortez. Last night I dreamed that I died and stand, stood before those pearly gates. And suddenly I realized there must be some mistake. But somewhere from the other side, I, thought, I heard those words again. He said, let me tell you a secret about father's love. You know, so, uh, cool. Same That's thing. That's beautiful. At your, at your worst moment of fear. Right. There he is. Right. Thank you. I want to propose that in the Torah, Moses, at the burning bush, has that same experience. I can't do this. Remember how many times he said, I can't do it? Send someone else. I can't talk. I'm not the right person, please. And God's answer is, I will be with you. So go talk to Pharaoh. It's not a guarantee of outcomes or of safety or of pleasure, or of comfort. It's, an, it's a guarantee of company, of a sense of presence accompanying us in our lives. So when the Ten Commandments are coming down, we're not hearing so much that sweet voice of God. No. You hear it at the burning bush. Oh, it's not so sweet. Mm. But it's there. It's I'm with you. When is the voice of God sweet? I'm with you. (laughs) So, um, I don't know what that what that's about. I know that there is sweetness in that voice. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it's not in this part. No, it's not. It's merciful. It's not. It's these are this this is like the the bare bones instructions. The mountain is quaking, and so when I think about it and I think about the people's terror, or I think about myself standing there. Um, It's like, how are we gonna do this? How am I gonna do this? And yes, God's merciful, forgiving voice isn't present in these Ten Commandments, you're right. Is it a soft voice though? We don't know. Oh, now that would be a whole other class. Because it says Moses spoke and God answered in a voice. And the tradition says, what is that voice? And the answers are manifold, but they are all in the, the, here's a few. One is that God answered in Moses' voice. And that Moses was having this, this is a rabbinic thing. It's not an external voice that Moses is hearing this internally. Mm-hmm. Then there's the one that the voice, since, he's speaking to, since the voice is speaking to all the children of Israel, that the voice is heard in a way that each person could understand and receive at their own level. Mm-hmm. And then there's another story that says, the voice was so overwhelming, and this is about mystical, uh, uh, sort of like mystical, like, explosions of awareness that everyone's soul flew out of their bodies and the angels had to had to con- tell God to tone it down so that and and brought the people back to life so that they could receive the word and another says the voice was every cattle stopped lowing every bird stopped tweeting every every ab- that it was a silence of what 
the cold the mama daka, which is what Elijah hears, which is called the still small voice, better translated as that amidst all of these fireworks and the smoking mountain, there was the sound of silence. This this fine that we have to that when we hear it, it's it just it stops us in our tracks and brings us to stillness. Mm. And it's as though the whole world stopped. Time. So what is the voice? There's a the Jewish tradition just goes to town on this. What does it mean to hear the voice of God? And I just want to say, and then I'll, I'll, Paul, I want to hear what you have to say. Um, that it seems like we're being tested in the Torah. That this is a test. This is a trial. That this isn't a pleasure cruise. That... Uh, that there's a reason for us to be here and that it's going to be challenging and it's going to be scary and it's going to be <clears throat> completely fulfilling as well. What did you want to say? Two very quick things. I think that in terms of the voice, I think this was the first example of good English acting where it's very conversational, but the whole, you can hear it in the upper balcony. You, everyone can hear it, but it's like a Ah. A little conversation. That's right, that's right. A stage whisper. <laughs> but one other thing, again, going back to Aviva Zornberg, she talks about, like, with the birth of Adam, that here, you know, every, all the other creatures think that he's created them, and he's kind of in this lofty thing, and he really has a certain kind of humility, and he's really in a good place. But then he screws up, and he's kicked out of the Garden of Eden, so then he has a, this kind of major identity crisis. And the whole question is, is, why am I here? What is the purpose of all of this? So what Aviva Zornberg, she refers to, she says it's Anochi Adonai, I, you are, I am. And the whole point is that I am, and that you just want to aspire to be, to be really good at something, a great dancer, a great, whatever it is. And that, so that the whole, the Bible is just a spiritual roadmap to become the very best that you can be as, you know, for the greater good as whatever it is that you want to be. Thank you. Yeah. So that's the Anochi Adonai. Yes. Right out of Re'eh. What? Right out of Re'eh. Right out of the portion that you're preparing. Re'eh. We're going to hear from Miriam about Re'eh later in the year. Mm. What did you want to say, Blaze? Um, in order to receive and follow, mm -hmm. for me, I think there's something that has to die in me so that I can be open. And so part of the fear is the fear of death. Yes. Um, even little deaths. Even, yes. All Giving these, up that which all you... These, all these little deaths that... That which you happen, identify as yourself. That have to happen along the way mm -hmm. in order for me to hear and follow these commandments. <coughs> so... In the beginning, you said, "What is the? What are people afraid of?" Yeah, and maybe there's some recognition or experience of things in them that must die or are dying when confronting the great mystery, because without that, there is no ability to confront it or to receive it or to experience it. Okay. As we as we get older and and have to give up one idea of ourself after another. Mm -hmm. That's pretty uh, rough, you know. But if we've spent our lifetime practicing to give ourselves over to the to the life life unfolding, then maybe we can be a little less scared. 
clean there. Uh, emuna, emuna, you know, trust and faith to keep just, you know, hold our hands, emuna, and have somebody supporting us on either side because we can't do it alone. Again, that brings me back to that image of Moses. It, mm-hmm. I think it holds it all, mm-hmm. you know, against the battle, against doubt, and against um, uh, um, sort of selfish and small self-interest, and against and against and against. If you're presented with a cancer that is literal or allegorical, or you know mm-hmm. it's lesser than another's, that, that cancer gives you greater compassion for she who truly suffers hmm. on a deeper level. Well, if we've been awake to all of it and not just preoccupied with our own suffering, um, then it, it becomes a test that we can rise to. Yeah. Ooh. Um, I guess it's time to stop for now. Yes. <laughs> I have one thing to say. I'd love to hear it. Uh-huh. Ruth and Steve ran into Jerome in, in uh, Sarasota today. <laughs> and it wasn't raining. He's not even in Sarasota. I mean, mm-hmm. he was today. <laughs> oh, did they text you? Yes. Oh, sweet. <laughs>